thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're beginning our cycle of the family. We are, we've completed the cycle that is with the priesthood, and we're going to start the cycle that is with the family. As you know, in Leviticus, it isn't just about a set of laws given to the Levite priest. It's much broader than that, and as you can see tonight. Now, a word of caution. Tonight's topic is rated R, and I'm not joking. So um, if... Um, I think the audience here is pretty much at the right level. I don't think anything I'm going to say you've not heard before, but uh, a word of caution, particularly if, for instance, uh, you have uh, children who would say, I want to read scripture from starting with Genesis and go through Revelation. You might say, well, come over here now. Let's have a talk. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18 is not child-friendly, as you're going to see, because I'm going to read it to you right now. So, let us begin then with chapter 18 of the book of Leviticus, which is... So, the whole theme of this lecture is the definition of the family, or what is God saying about the family. And then chapter 19 is going to follow. I had hoped to cover both chapters in this one uh, talk tonight, but I have 16 pages of notes. So, um, and it's all really good material that we need to be aware of. So, I, I, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But be it as it may, let's start with chapter 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall do my ordinances and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances by doing which a man shall live. Key on this, by doing which a man shall live. So these are statutes that he's giving his people so that they may live by them. You understand that? Okay. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone near of kin... To him to uncover nakedness. So uncovering nakedness is a euphemism. It's a way of saying having sexual intercourse. Okay? Whenever you hear this word uncovered nakedness, it's a way of saying having sexual relations. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. 
which is the nakedness of your mother. You have to understand that. Back in Genesis, when Noah had drunk wine and was not aware of its effect and fell asleep, his son Ham uncovered his nakedness. People think, oh, he saw his dad naked. No, he slept with his mom. That's uncovering a man's nakedness, as Scripture is saying here very, very clearly. Let me read this verse to you again. You shall not uncover um, the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or born abroad. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter, or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's near kinswoman. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's near kinswoman. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. She is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. Um, for instance, if you marry a woman, don't marry her daughter at the same time. Okay? That's what it's saying. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are your near kinswoman. It is wickedness. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. Uncovering her nakedness while her sister is yet alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Now, verse 19 and following are not about incestual relations. They are about other types of forbidden sexual behavior. And we'll talk about the menstrual... I mean, I'll tell you right away, the menstrual cycle has everything to do with the loss of blood... Therefore, when a woman is in her menstrual cycle, back then it was understood that she was impure because she's losing blood. And sex is not impure. So you don't mix the two. Now, obviously, this prohibition has been lifted in the church. It's not a prohibition against morality. Okay, today, this one. We'll talk about that, which one it is, and how do you understand, how do you interpret, how do you understand whatever is in Leviticus 8 to apply to us today, or does it, or does it not? Okay. And you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. You shall not give any of your children to devote them by fire to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any beast and defile yourself with it, neither shall any woman give herself to a beast to lie with it, it's a perversion." Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for, all, by, for by all these 
the nations I am casting out before you defiled themselves, and the land became defiled, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Notice now the connection with the land. Right? The land vomiting its inhabitants. Right? So we'll come back and talk about that. But you shall keep my statutes and my ordinances and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For all of these abominations the men of the land did who were before you, so that the land became defiled. So their sexual activities defiled the land. As a result, the land vomited them. Well, there's a definite meaning behind that, but we have to understand what that is. Lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For whoever, for whoever shall do any of these abominations, the persons that do, that do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs which were practiced before you, and never to defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Right, end of the chapter. So, in the logical structure we're following right now, as we study the book of Leviticus, 18 and 19 come before the chapters we studied last week on the priesthood. Nevertheless, what is key are that these chapters follow and do not precede the sacrificial order. Key on that. These chapters follow and do not precede the sacrificial order. What does that mean? It means that we cannot read these laws of morality and try to apprehend them and understand them apart from the laws on liturgy. We started the book of Leviticus understanding what type of sacrifices must be offered. This is after the book of Exodus, where half of the book, or one-third of the book, is dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle the place of worship. Watch the order, because this gives you insight in the way God approaches us. His divine pedagogy, the way He teaches us of the things that are important and what is more important. We tend to flip things around. We tend to flip things around. We tend to think that immorality or sexual perversion is worse than liturgical abuse. We think immorality and sexual perversion, however terrible they may be, is worse than liturgical abuse. But if we really thought, thought these things through we would realize that it's the, the, it's the opposite that is true. Why? Because liturgical abuse are directed against God. Sexual immorality is directed against another human being. First, then against God. Do you understand? Yes. Furthermore, 
Furthermore, sexual immorality tend to be a symptom of the tepidity of worship. It's a symptom or a syndrome, if you will. The cause is upstream. It is with the way we worship. Because we worship poorly, sexual immorality follows. Why? Very simple. It's not complicated. I'm going to put it to you in terms that you can relate with, relate to easily. Suppose you're not drinking water. You're not drinking water. What are the symptoms that will show if you're not drinking water? What happens to your muscles? They become what? Achy. Right? Why? You're not drinking water. That's the symptom. If you spend your time massaging your muscles and taking painkillers and using heat and cold, would, would that fix the problem? No. What do you need? Water. Okay. How is grace portrayed in Scripture? Flowing water. Flowing. Right? Because sitting water is not portable. You don't want to drink it, right? Water that sits. It's flowing water. In the book of Ezekiel, the water is flowing from where? From beneath the temple. You get it? You don't water the world with grace. The world becomes sick. And then the world will try to find compensating things to do. You get it? Okay. How do we water the world with grace? Pardon? Okay, let's start right there. You have to have a proper celebration of the Mass, right? Given to whom? Who's, who's, who, are the, who are the recipient of the Mass? Catholics. Us, right? In order for us to receive, to properly receive and properly communicate that grace forward, what must we be? We must be in a state of grace. grace. Yeah? If the majority of Catholics think that it's okay to use contraception, what have we done to the flow of grace? We just clogged it. Do you see why now the world is in shambles? Do you understand those connections? That's how it works. The liturgy is the engine, the heart of the world. That's what makes the world stick. But if that power is blocked, if that power is not allowed to move the water into the world, how will the water be? How will the world be watered? Now, where do we get this one from? We get it also from the Gospels, right? The Syrophoenician woman. She comes to Jesus, and the disciples want to shoo her away. And he tells her, I was sent. He tells his disciple, I was sent for the lost children of Israel. Send her away. 
Well, no, she comes over and he tells her that it is not lawful to give the food of the children to the dogs. The food of the children are the children of the kingdom. That's the Eucharist. So Jesus is saying it's not lawful for me to give you grace directly because this is reserved for those who are part of the household. She gets it, which is amazing. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table. And then Jesus says, Oh, woman, how great is your faith. She got it. The apostles got nothing. They don't understand the structured nature. She got it. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He can pick whomever He wants. Do you understand? That's how the whole thing is structured. That's why in the book of Leviticus, this whole code of morality does not precede but follows the liturgy. Yeah? Okay. Now that we've established that, let's go through this. So chapter 18 is one of the three legal collections in the Torah that deal in detail with incest and sexuality. Chapter 18 represents a series of commandments formulated in a style similar to the Decalogue. Do not, or thou shalt not. And there is a comment on the gravity of the offense, but no specific penalties are stipulated, just as it is in the Decalogue. Now that is complemented by Leviticus 20. We're going to see that, not soon, hopefully. Because in 20, the same commandments of 18 are restated, But, penalties are indicated for them. And then in Deuteronomy 27, 20 and 23, which we're going to cover after we finish Leviticus, we have an enumeration of prohibitions of the same sort as part of an execration. There, it is, cursed be he, so it's a series of curses associated for anyone who conducts himself in this way. So the three together form a moral law, a moral um, uh, a series of laws that dictate how one ought to act morally. 18 is the most systematic and complete collection of laws within the Torah dealing with the subject of incest in any forbidden sexual unions. It, it is very specific. And it's outlines in detail which union among relatives within the ancient Israelite clan are forbidden on grounds of incest adultery, and so on, and in so doing, it indirectly defines the limits of the immediate family. Right? However, we need to keep in mind, as St. Augustine pointed out, that the laws, the moral laws of Leviticus 18 are, are, are couched within a context that allows uh, uh, polygamy because it was permissible for an Israelite to marry more than one woman. Jacob married four. Right? And Abraham had two. Therefore, many of these issues that you see here stem from this polygamous relationship. Now Jesus cast that chapter back into the context of Genesis, when speaking to the Pharisees, he tells them, Moses 
allow you to divorce your wife for the hardness of your heart. Translation, if he didn't allow you to divorce her, you probably would kill her. Okay? For the hardness of your heart. But it was not so from the beginning. Referring back to Genesis, where a man shall leave, shall cleave to his wife, one, and the two shall become one flesh. So in the Christian law, we need to take what's in Leviticus, understand its essence, and apply it to a monogamous relationship. But keep that larger framework in mind. I'm going to come back to it because it is really critical for our understanding of this chapter. In the context of Leviticus, the nuclear family is founded on six types of relatives. Mother, father, son, daughter, brother, and sister. Mother, father, son, daughter, brother, and sister. Now, we've seen that last week in chapter 21. Any, an ordinary priest usually is forbidden to defile himself through contact with a corpse. But he was nevertheless permitted to attend the burial of any one of these six relatives. And we talked about the fact that out of these six, the wife is not there. The wife is not mentioned. And that in the Jewish tradition, they extended that to the burial of the wife. Because the rabbis argued that if her husband could not be there for her, there may be nobody else. So you can see that the laws of charity, even though it is not expressly stated this way, trump that one particular law. In, in general, life, preservation of life, tend to trump the law among the rabbis. Right? Now, the only exception to this is the leveret marriage, which according to Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10, dispenses with the prohibition in cases when a brother dies without leaving a male heir. In such an event, it is actually incumbent on a man to marry his, his uh, brother's widow. And you remember that famous passage in the Gospels where they come to Jesus and tell him uh, there was a man who married this woman and he died and he had six brothers and they all married her and they all died. And in heaven, who, who should be the wife? You know, whose wife is she? Trying to disprove a resurrection by saying this is ridiculous she's going to end up with seven husbands up there right and we know Jesus is the answer so but that's the the background of it to 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 this so with these types of restrictions in place the nuclear family was formed amongst or or defined rather and protected so for instance a man could not marry a man with several wives could not marry the sister of one of them while that wife was alive. That was not permitted. And the, the other interesting thing I want to point out is that according to the Jewish law, a child born out of wedlock, as long as that relationship was not adulterous or incestuous, is not considered an outcast. But a child born out of an incestuous relationship would be considered an outcast. He would not be admitted into the larger society. Chapter 18 opens, verses 1 through 5, and closes with, verses 25, 30, admonitions that state the consequences of transgressing against God's commandments 
in the area of forbidden sexual activity. Such offenses would undermine Israel's right to the land of Canaan and would eventually bring about their exile, which is what happened. Why is that connection to the land? Because the land is magical. No. The land is what? It's the source of your... It's economy. Anytime you hear land in in this context, substitute with economy. So what is he saying? He's saying that not only liturgical... Watch the sequence. Liturgical behavior moves you towards a certain moral conduct. That certain moral conduct moves you towards an economy that will flourish to support you. Break the liturgical behavior that leads you to an amoral, immoral conduct, which eventually will lead to an economy that will not support you. Simple. That was God's plan all along. Right? Now, if you understand that, you can read the signs. If you understand that, you can read the signs. And by economy, we just don't mean, mean money only. We mean meaning everything else. Resources, energy, uh, the, um, the um, environment, and all that, you know, na- seasons, nature, rain. And we will see that when we'll get to the last chapter of Leviticus, and again in Deuteronomy, because God is very explicit about the blessings and the curses. You know, one of the blessings is, if you follow my commandments, I will give you rain in its season. Right? Now we're getting rain, right, out of season. The seasons are kind of whacked up. Right? Well, yeah. God is faithful. All right. Now, here's the first observation after we read everything. There is, so there are, though, some contradictions with the patriarchs. Hmm. All these legislations forbid, we just said it, marriage with half-sisters, right? Well, so this is explicitly stated in 18.9. We just read it, 20.17, Deuteronomy 27.22. But according to Genesis 20.12, Abram, before he was called Abraham, claimed that Sarai, his wife, was his half-sister, his father's daughter from another wife. In 2 Samuel 13.13, 13, we read of Tamar's appeal to her half-brother Ammon not to rape her, both children of David. She insists that David, their father, would not deny her to him as a wife, perhaps indicating that the father might have permitted such a marriage at certain periods of biblical history. Leviticus 18, 12 through 14, and 20, 19 through 20, so 18, 12, 14, and 20, 19, 20, forbid marriage with any of a man's three possible aunts. Okay? Yet Exodus 6:20 records as part of a priestly genealogy that Amram married his aunt, Joshebed, who bore him Moses and Aaron. And then Leviticus 18.18 18 forbids marriage to the sister of one's wife while that wife is alive. Yet, Genesis 29, 21-30 relates that Jacob married Leah and Rachel, who were sisters. 
All right. So how do we reconcile the laws given in Leviticus and these acts that had happened that happened during the patriarchal time? One modern way of reconciling those is to say, well, you know, this is just a um, reflection of the um, progress the, in the consciousness of Israel and their understanding of the laws. So it's almost like a redaction process. At one point you had these laws, then later on they added more to them because they realized that certain things were happening that were not right, and so they just kind of added to it. You can go that route if you want. I don't think it will take you very far. Not only that, but it will actually... Um, it will actually cause you to miss a fundamental point about the Bible and about God's way of dealing with us. The Bible is not a record of human perfection. The Bible is not a record of human perfection. The Bible is not concerned or so concerned with human activity as it is with divine activity. It is a book that helps us understand how God relates to us. The purpose of Scripture is to help us meet God, help us understand how God acts towards us and who God is. Right? Okay, so now... What is important, therefore, is to see it from God's vantage point. Yes? You're with me so far? Okay. Having said all that, there ought to be a really logical reason for this apparent contradiction. And that logical reason must be satisfying to our reason. can be some sort of a mysterious statement. Well, God was not yet ready to reveal this to them. But why? Right? That is not enough. Okay. First question. That's all right. Thank you. We'll go with it. We'll see how far we go. First question to ask is this. Um, when Abraham, or Abram, let's take that example, and for those of you who weren't with us at that Bible study, I do refer you to the book of Genesis up on Corbono, Q-R-B-O-N-O. The whole study is there. We studied the book of Genesis in great detail. But when Abram agreed to Sarai's suggestion to take her... uh, um, her maid servant... And bring forth a child. How did God react to this? What was God's reaction? Yes. True, he didn't allow the child to take the gift of the firstborn. That is absolutely true. But it's something a little more striking than that. Thirteen years of silence. God did not speak to Abram for thirteen years. Alright. Second example we need to go through. Jacob had four wives total, 12 boys. How did Jacob look on his boys 
when he was on his deathbed. The last, um, the, not the uh, last chapter, the last chapter, one before, 49 or 50, you have what is called the Testament of Jacob. If you go back and read it, these were supposed to be blessing on his children, and most of them are not. How did this affect his life? He had strife among his boys, jealousy. They tried to kill one of their brothers or sell him into slavery. If you watch his life, you will see that it was full of um, conflict and difficulties. So nowhere in all of this can we see that God approved of that marital behavior. Why? Because of the word that Jesus Christ spoke. It was not so in the beginning. It was not so in the beginning. Therefore, the behavior of the patriarchs in the sexual arena was not perfect. All right, but then why is it that God did not say anything to them back then and He's saying it now? What is different? Can somebody tell me what is different? No, not yet. We're not yet at the covenant with Jesus. I'm talking about Leviticus. Yes. No, no, Leviticus. What is the difference between Leviticus and the patriarchs? Okay, trying to live among them and, and what we just said at the beginning of this talk. The liturgy is here now. It wasn't there back then. That's the fundamental difference. This is why he can give them those restrictions now more so than before, because he's giving them now more than what the patriarchs had. He, they didn't have the Shekinah, the presence of God amongst them all the time. They didn't have the Umim and Thumim, the tools by which they could go ask a priest for advice and receive God's answer. They didn't have ways to atone even for these unwitting, um, uh, unwitting sins that they may have committed. None of that was present, even to the patriarchs. Mind you, the patriarchs could sacrifice anywhere they wished. True, but they did not have all that. And to whom much is given, much is required. That's why it is, once you set it in the context of the liturgy, it makes complete sense why God is asking them to live in this way. Remember, in 20 and 21, we saw that the priest had to be pure. And the animal that you were to bring for sacrifice had to be without blemish. Well, the animal represents who? The one being... The one who's offering the animal, because it's offered on his behalf, right? Well, could it make sense that the animal is without blemish, but that guy in his own house has a, a promiscuous conduct as far as sexuality goes? Does it make any sense? That God would put so much emphasis on the priest and the animal, and not on the one who's offering it? Does that make any sense? Of course not, right? Okay. But there remains one more question. Why is it that God didn't start this whole conversation around the family with food? After all, people have a tendency to kill more for food than for sex. Right? Why not start with food? You can eat only three meals a day. When you eat, these are the things you should eat. These are the things you should not eat. I mean, it's also important. Why 
Sexual relations, not food. All right. Here is one important aspect of sexuality you don't find in food. Let's go back to the beginning. God created Adam first. Out of Adam, he created Eve. Yeah? God can do whatever God wishes to do. Yes? So, he could have created Eve first and Adam out of Eve. Yeah? Or, he could have created half of half of each of them and taken a bit from him and a bit of her to complete both of them. That also would have had a lot of nice symbolic meaning for us. We're made from each other type, type thing. Yes? God could have created a man and a woman, then two men, and then two women. Or, he could have created two creatures which switch gender at springtime. Or, he could have created two creatures who could flip-flop at will. All of these things were in the realm of the possible. He could have done any one of these things. He could have created one guy and twelve gals. Or, one... Anyways, you start to... um, My point to you is that we need to think about creation before creation was. And ask ourselves this question. Why did God choose to do it this way? What does it mean? Well, obviously we understand Genesis in the light of Christ. Christ is the one who reveals to us the ultimate meaning of Scripture. In Christ, we came to know that God is a trinity. Without Christ, that, that knowledge would, would be hidden from us. This is not a knowledge that is attainable by human reason alone. On a, human reason could possibly postulate that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But human reason has no way to ascertain, to say with certainty, this is so. We needed Christ. Here's the important thing. The reason why Eve proceeds from Adam is twofold. Number one, number one, it images the procession of the Son from the Father. In the Trinity, the Son proceeds from the Father. Therefore, Eve images that procession. And the relationship between Adam and Eve image the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love. Just as the exchange of love between Father and Son is God, so then the exchange of love between a husband and a wife is the presence of God. You with me? Therefore, the family, the family in its constitution is a sacrament. It points to a higher reality, which is the Trinity. Yeah? The family is a Bible. It's the divine Word of God. And in that divine Word of God, we learn to 
understand God's plan for us in the family. The the second reason why Eve proceeds from Adam is because the church proceeds from Christ. The fact that the church proceeds from Christ explains and justifies why Eve proceeds from Adam, not the other way. St. Paul is very emphatic about this. The marriage between a man and a woman is an image of the union of Christ and His bride, the church. Hence, sexuality, gender, is essential for understanding God. Gender is not optional. Gender is essential for our understanding of God because it is the man and a woman together when they love each other that image the Trinity. And just as the son proceeds from the father, so the wife proceeds from her husband and a woman needs to be subject to her husband in love and the man must die for his wife in love because both of them image the relation of Christ to his church. This is not a question of power. This is not a question of struggle between a man and a woman. This is the order of love. This is the divine order to which we are all called. It is that order which explains Genesis, and it is that order which explains Leviticus. The prohibition, therefore, that we see here are such that they conform the Jewish mind to the reality of God. They prepare them to understand who God is. Effectively, what we need to see in these moral laws that are given in this chapter, not so much God who is bent on restricting our sexual urges, not so much restrictions on the sexual behavior of man, as it is a God who cares that our own inclinations do not confuse us so much that we are unable to recognize Him. Our conscience is gullible. Our conscience is gullible. I'm going to show you how. Suppose you have a nice car, a really nice car, a $150,000 car. Some might argue $150,000 car is not a nice car, but for the sake of this conversation, let's say it's a nice car. And suppose, in a whim of generosity, you allow me to drive it, to take it on a, you know, neighborhood spin. So I'm driving in your car, and I turn the corner, and I park your car right there, because I'm afraid of driving it, honestly. And I wait about 15 minutes, and then I call you to tell you there was a terrible accident and your car is totaled. You're on the phone, you're just hearing me. What are you thinking? What happens to you on that moment? Pardon? 
well, hopefully not a heart attack, but it's a good point that you're making here. What happens to your conscience on that moment? You're convinced the car is gone. Yes? You're sincerely convinced the car is gone. You're with me? Okay. Are you dealing with reality on that spot, on that moment? No, you're not. It's complete fantasy. You don't know it's complete fantasy. But it is complete fantasy. Objectively, I'm sitting right around the corner in your car. Nothing happened to it. You don't know that. But your conscience thinks it's the truth. Yeah? And is prepared to act accordingly. Heart attack or take a gun and find me. What is my point to you? My point is... It's not enough to follow your conscience, as I just showed you. I'm a salesman. I walk into your house. You don't have a carpet. I have this vacuum cleaner with me. It normally costs $4,000. I show you how amazing it is. You don't have a carpet. All right? But it's the last one I got, and if you buy it from me, I'll... uh, be able to go to the next level and feed my family, get married, be happy. And I'm going to make a really great deal for you. you I show you, you can actually resell it for more than what you buy it from. I'm just going to get to buy it for 1500 If you let me keep on talking, by the time I'm done, you're going to buy it for 800 bucks. You don't have a carpet. Do you see my point? Your conscience on its own is gullible. Yeah? Therefore, your conscience can be torqued quite easily. And once it's torqued, it believes what it forms in its own head. That becomes reality. Yeah? So then, in the church, there is a dictum that says, a man must follow the dictate of his conscience. That's part of the teaching of the church. But it's truncated. Because there's a second part to it. When it is conformed to right reason. Meaning, when conscience is conformed, formed after right reason, which is the truth. That's the key. Why am I bringing all this now here? Because sexual conduct is so powerful an impulse that it torques our reason. And will make us believe anything. And will justify anything. God is aware of that. His ultimate goal is what? He wants His people to worship Him, as Jesus will tell the Samaritan woman, in truth and in the Spirit. That's where He wants to lead His people to. As far as Leviticus is concerned, He just introduced them to the liturgy, a way of worshiping, a way of offering sacrifice, a way of being aware of your faults. And he knows our makeup. He knows that unless sexuality is stayed and controlled and made to submit to right reason, it will take us away from him. That's why he begins this conversation around the family with these types of restrictions. Why? Because just as now, back then, they were surrounded with cultures where sexual promiscuity was allowed. 
In the Roman culture, for instance, there was this distinction between a wife and a mistress. A wife was there to bring children, and it was perfectly acceptable to pass the wife along from brother to brother. And the Roman culture wasn't the only one. Yes. Well, if his brother needs a kid and he doesn't have one, he can have her. Yeah. It was part of the constitution of the Roman family. They didn't see any wrong with it. Now, we are shocked because our conscience is formed differently. All right? That is why you see these moral laws being given in that chapter, but they are conditioned upon the proper liturgy. When the liturgy is not followed, guess what happens? These restrictions, these safeguards, are removed. And I don't need to describe to you what it looks like. That's, I'm bringing this because homosexuality in this chapter is restricted. Now, there are a number of um, commentators, gay or otherwise, who would argue as follows. And it's a good argument. We need to follow it through. Even though I gave you most of the elements for the, to, re, to rebut it. But their argument is, look, that statement about the restriction of uh, uh, homosexuality is, cast, is couched within this chapter of regulation that deal with incestuous relations. Right? Therefore, it only applies in the situation of incestuous relation between a man and a man. But outside of that, they don't apply. A second argument that is given is the entire chapter, and that's a very powerful one and interesting one also, the entire chapter, the set of laws given in chapter 18 really come from Leviticus with its outdated sacrificial system that is not practiced anymore. Hence, since the sacrificial system is not practiced, why should we be paying attention to any of those laws? Now, this is an important argument because it is one that St. Augustine and St. Thomas grappled with. And they had to distinguish between what they call cultic laws versus moral laws. Saying that the cultic laws can go because the liturgy itself is gone, but the moral laws stay because they transcend that particular liturgy. In chapter 18, when God says that a man must not lie with a man, as he lies, in the way he lies with a woman, it's an abomination. He uses the word abomination. Now, he doesn't use that word everywhere. Right? At one point, I'm going to really key on every passage where that word is used. But two of them that are used, which are very interesting in my mind, are this one, right? which many of us would agree it's an abomination. But let me tell you the other one which many of you will find it strange. A woman shall not put on men's clothing, for it is an abomination. Okay, now what do we do with this one? Tricky, huh? So we can explain one away because it suits us, right? But we can keep the other because it suits us. So this is a way of appropriating Scripture and making it conform to 
our belief. What if we can do that, why can't the gay community do the same thing and justify that this particular argument about homosexuality in Leviticus only applies there because it was back then and only in a very narrow sense and not in a wider sense and therefore homosexuality is not really condemned by God. Because they can argue, well, look, abomination. He says the same thing about women's clothes, wearing men's clothes, an abomination. And no one today thinks it's an abomination. So therefore, if that's not an abomination, why should we consider this an abomination? Hence, you Christians are bigots. How do you answer that? So it's not enough if you're debating somebody, or even not debating, but really wanting to sincerely understand God's words to kind of uh, appropriate something simply because it pleases you. Because there you're not doing God's will. You're not conforming your conscience to the truth. You're simply conforming Scripture to your own belief. Now, what, what good does that do? The question is, why is it that in those cases he uses the word abomination? Which indicates of a higher, it's a higher type of um, uh, sinful behavior. So before we get into the, does it apply, does it not apply, why does he use that? Okay, if you understood what I told you of the wider framework, God is a trinity. The family is made in the image of God. Anything that deforms the image of God in us causes us to lose our understanding of who we are and who God is. A true abomination. Agree? Mm -hmm. You agree? Okay. So anything that touches upon a man being made in the image of God is an abomination because if we're not made in the image of God... In whose image are we made? The beast. Book of Revelation. Those are the two choices. Hence, it is truly an abomination. Yes? Does that make sense? Logically. Okay. Can we now explain these two statements, both on homosexuality and on a woman wearing men's dress, in that context? I think we can. In the case of homosexuality, is there a deformation of the image of the Trinity? Right? Why? Because gender matters. Okay. In the case of a woman wearing men's dress, is there a deformation of the image of the Trinity? You have to understand what it means for a woman to wear men's dress. It means that she can be, think about it, if a woman is dressed like a man, what can she do? She can go out, she can stand with the men, she can be taken for one of them, therefore she can do what they do. No, 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 they didn't wear dresses. That's a misconception. The clothing was very distinguishable, absolutely, even though for our eyes it may not be, but it was very distinguishable between a man and a woman. Yeah. I don't have um, the luxury to go through the uh, fashion of the time, but let's just say that you could clearly distinguish them. Yes, clearly. A man from a woman. For instance, very simple, the headdress is very different between a man and a woman. A turban is not something that a woman wore, a man wore. Right, a woman wore a shawl or something that would cover her. Like, think of our, the Blessed Mother and Saint Joseph. Okay, in most traditional images, you can very clearly see this is a guy and this is a girl. No confusion. So, no. Why? Because this meant that a woman was actually being conformed to the image of 
a man instead of being conformed to the image of God. It's confusing gender, it's confusing roles, it's confusing our position in regards to God, and therefore our path to holiness are being confused. When in Genesis, God cursed the garden, he looked at the man and the woman, and he gave them different curses, which were their path to salvation, by the way. To the woman, he told her, what? I will increase what? Pain and labor. To the man, what did he say? Okay. Therefore, therefore, since Christ took those curses and turned them into blessings by death on the cross, he took the symbol of curse, which is the cross, and turned it into salvation. Therefore, he took those same curses and turned them into path to what? Salvation. So what is the royal road for a woman to reach salvation and holiness? Childbearing. What is the royal road for a man to reach salvation and holiness? Work. So, you take women, you put them in the workforce, and guess what? What is the mantra of women today? How do they value themselves? They can do everything a man can do. Whoop-dee-doo. How is that a sign of glory? But our conscience is torqued. And we fabricate reality to suit our whims. You understand? Yeah. There was this one comedian that we listened to, we watched actually, and one day, he's basically telling his fellow men not to do what he did. He walked, he walked home, and the house was kind of in a mess, and his wife is sitting on a couch, she's pregnant, and he goes, so, what did you do today? And his wife looked at him and said, Today, Henry, what did I do? I made a lung. She's pregnant. You have a living being in you. You are co-creator with God. You're creating life. You want to do what a man does? Think about the implication. That's why. You understand why in God's eyes it's an abomination? So it's not the clothing per se, but it is the mindset behind the clothing. The whole thought that a woman must see her value in her ability to do what a man does. It's, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's a trap. It's a pretty powerful trap. It's a pretty trap. Yeah. It's a trap that empowers you because you need to be empowered now this whole business of being empowered i don't look at it lightly because men have failed women right men have failed women through greed through abandonment of liturgy abandoning the church men became greedy selfish and they went after their own interest and they stopped wanting to die for their wives as simple as that and the women held the fort for a long time, and after a while, they rebelled. I understand that. I understand it. But I'm just sorry, because the price is really high. It's the family. It's not, no, 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 forget the family. For the woman herself. Because she's leaving the royal path to holiness. 
which means that a woman who works her entire life reaches heaven. Of course she will reach heaven. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that unless you're a mom, you can't make it to heaven. I want to be very clear here. But there's a big difference. The state of glory she would reach would be much lower than if she had been a mother and raised children. As simple as that. She's been robbed of what is truly hers. That's what makes me sad. So Leviticus 18 has to be seen in the context of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Where at the end of Revelation, chapter 19, the church comes down from heaven and she is what? A bride adorned for her groom. For her bridegroom, the Christ. That's how the church is presented. When a woman is conformed to a man, she loses her understanding of who the church is. Because her conscience is torqued differently. When a guy says to himself, alright, 60, I'm just going to go retire, sit on a beach and do nothing. Same deal. Leviticus 18 is important, and that's why I don't, you notice, I don't spend much time distinguishing between the legal or the cultic and moral law. Because, number one, it's not that easy, despite all the work that St. Thomas did, and he did an awesome work on this. It's not that easy to say, well, this is really related to the worship, and this is really moral. Most of them are intertwined because they were meant to be. It is better, I think, to lift all that up from what is given in Leviticus, keeping in mind Genesis, us being created in the image of God, the plan of God for us, and lift it up to a society where we have the true liturgy and a monogamous marriage. And if you put those two together, you're, you're able to interpret Leviticus appropriately in a monogamous life. That is why homosexuality is, the homosexual act is contrary to God's will, as is affirmed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It is because it deforms that truth in us and therefore moves us away from God. That is why the sexuality is important to preserve even more so than food because food obviously distorts also our conscience, but it does not distort, it doesn't erase or deform the image of God. If I'm obese, I'm still a guy. Do you get that? Okay. That's why God hones in on sexuality, because it is connected to life. And He is life. Make sense? All right. So, let us... um, Finish with a word of prayer. All right. Questions? Yeah, that's an interesting reading of the text. In fact, the text that you just quoted when he was talking to the woman weeping, uh, the first literal meaning of it when he told them, uh, don't cry for me, but cry for yourself and your children, was really in reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And during that time, when Jerusalem was being besieged by the Romans, the idea was that it was preferable not to have any children than to have children because of the dire situation the Jews were in it. In fact, 
Josephus who, who uh, documented the war of uh, the, the, the war that happened between Titus and his uh, Roman legions and, uh, and uh, Jew, uh, Jews who were, who were locked into Jerusalem, told, wrote that when the Romans finally took, took into, were able to break uh, the walls and walk into the city, they were, uh, at, at one point they were greeted by noble women who gave them uh, the cooked parts of their babies to eat because they were eating their own babies. So that was really the reference that he had in mind. But now you can take that and move it forward and apply it to these times. Yes. And see how conscience has been deformed to such a degree where having children has become a curse. Right? Oh, you have seven. Oh, you must be busy. Oh, you know. That kind of thought tells you that it's really reaching its finality because it's basically moving a woman completely away from the source of uh, from from her source of glory and moving her into something where she's really subservient to a man because she's made into the image of a man. Right? Yes. What about consecrated life for a woman? Being a mother. Oh, yeah. Consecrated life actually is the is the goal for all of us. Because in heaven there are no one is married to anyone. Like we said, right? Christ himself said there are they're not married nor given in marriage. Why? Because everybody, the soul of every uh, uh, Christian in heaven is united to Christ. So, in mystical terms, the soul is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And that unity, expressed in spousal term, is the goal of every Christian, to be completely united with God. Yes? Well, those who are in consecrated lives receive that special calling from God saying, skip the sign, skip the model, and come straight to the reality of it. Be united to me. So there are even a stronger sign of that marital union we're talking about. And that's why, in fact, a woman who joins a religious order has a ceremony like a wedding. Because Christ is her bride. And... That is even stronger of a wedding than a wedding between a man and a woman. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Yes. Women who cannot have children, thank you. Or couples who cannot have children. Um, What is really key here in God's eyes is the intent. It's the intent. So a woman who cannot bear children, let's say, or the couple is not fruitful. The church and the catechism is very clear. They are called to be fruitful in other ways. In other words, they are going to bear fruit, bring life in other ways. God, even though one is barren, will not leave you barren. And the perfect example, obviously, is somebody like... uh, Mother Teresa. Well, she wasn't barren in that sense, but she never had children of her own. But we all call her what? And we have an affinity to her like she is our? I mean, we don't call her mother just because it's cute. There is truth in that calling. We recognize her as a mom. And a pretty powerful one. Because of her fruitfulness. So, yeah. Being barren, not being able to bear children, not being able to bear more than two 
The number it doesn't matter here. It is the openness to that calling, the obedience to that calling, and the trust of that calling that God will provide. Yeah, we've taken the trust away from God and put it into ourselves. And this is what the devil wants. The devil wants you to be very responsible. Sounds strange. What I mean by that, he wants to pile responsibility on your shoulder. Make you think that if you're not there, all is going to come down to nothing. Well, none of us is really indispensable. And when we do that, we lose the spirit of childhood. We are unable to trust in God and to give Him everything and know that everything depends on Him, not us. Yes, in vitro pregnancies is something that the church has condemned. Yes, you're not allowed to have a child in vitro because, again, it's a deformation and it's an attack on the dignity of a woman. We don't replace a woman by a machine. Even if we can't, we don't. So there are certain actions that should not be taken because they constitute an attack on the dignity of the human being, on the dignity of marriage, and on the image of the Trinity in us. Put it this way. Um, how many of you seen, have seen the movie uh, uh, Raising Arizona? It's an old movie, right? There's this couple who really want to have a kid. They really want to have a kid. They can't. They're depressed. They want children and they cannot. And there's this guy who's super rich, who has quintuplet. Five of them. Well, they reason that's not, that's not fair. And he's not a really nice guy. So, he has five. Well, what's the big deal? He can do with four. So they go there and kidnap one of them. The fact that I can take a child does not make it right. The fact that I can create this thing in in vitro does not make it right. Okay? I'm summarizing, but that's the bottom line of the argument. Yes? Yeah, I don't even want to go there. Even if they didn't have to kill anything, it was still wrong. What, What I'm trying to say, but said more succinctly, the fact that the marital union has two purposes, I mean, the sexual act has two purposes, unite the two together, and bring life. When you do in vitro, you've separated them, which is against God's will, which is mean against the dignity of marriage, the dignity of the man and the woman, and the image of the Trinity in us. Right? Why? Because the love of God and His action in the world are inseparable. God acts through love. Yes? So, so the relationship between a man and a woman must be inseparable. The love and the life are together. Well, they already did that, right? I know, well, the children exist. No, 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 fine. The children exist. There's nothing about the children. I'm saying that they must go to confession. They must truly repent of what they've done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Go ahead. Okay, so that's on the other side, on the end-of-life business. The church is um, also very clear on that. If somebody has... Failing organs all over, right? Kidneys are failing, heart is failing, everything's failing, right? And you, he, and this person is kept alive just by the machine. It is completely acceptable to remove it. No problem there. 
But if, on the other hand, you have somebody who cannot eat, but otherwise is, but is otherwise healthy, removing a feeding tube to starve the person to death is unacceptable. Okay? Yeah, it is. So therefore, it is not important. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're Christian, if you're Catholic, you want to die. This is boot camp. You don't want to be here forever. Right? So, so therefore, this is not about, you know, prolonging life for the purpose of prolonging life. It's just making sure we're not attacking the dignity of the human being. We're not taking advantage of somebody who's weak. That's what the church is uh, set against. Make sense? Okay. Yes. So, so in the Catholic, in the catechism, again, the, the, the church is very clear that uh, people of homosexual, who have homosexual tendencies, this is how the church called them, uh, must be, uh, if they have that tendency, they must be received and accepted with dignity and respect. But the church also calls on them to live chastity, to live a chaste life, not to act according to these urges. So therefore, if there is, and there are actually, homosexuals who live like this in an organization called Courage, which is very, very much hush-hush, but it's part of the Catholic Church, it's an organization of gays and lesbians who live a chaste life. Those people are part of the church, so we welcome them. Okay. But if you have somebody, and it doesn't matter if it's a homosexual or not, somebody who wants to come into the church and assert and affirm that which is contrary to the teaching of the church, well, we cannot welcome them by definition. So it's an oxymoron. Therefore, I am hoping that these pastors are basically saying we must be welcoming to those homosexuals who are in line with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Because if they're saying anything else, they are not, be, not conforming themselves to the teachings of the church. And therefore, we, are, um, we must oppose them with charity, gently, but firmly. It's not acceptable. Yes. Okay. This one is easy. Yes. Okay. Adoption is, uh, a couple is uh, uh, welcome to adopt children. Yes. The second question depends. If you're talking about euthanasia, somebody who says, I'm suffering, I have Parkinson's disease, I have this terminal illness, I have this thing that's making me suffer, right. I just want to die. Th- th- no, this. Right, that's different. Yeah. I am talking about somebody who is sitting there and saying, give me an injection, I want to die. Oh, okay. Okay, that's called euthanasia. That is not acceptable, ever. There's assisted suicide. What's an oxymoron? Again, it's not assisted suicide, it's murder. But anyway, uh, that's not acceptable. On the other hand, if somebody says, look, I reached this end of my life. If, let's say, um, something happens where the doctor determined I'm dying. I'm okay. I can go. Don't, don't spend a lot of money on me. That's, also, that's acceptable. However, if somebody says, I'm healthy, I have a heart attack, just let me die. That's not acceptable. Okay? Because this person, I mean, uh, we, we don't want to test God. We don't want to say, oh, it's God's will is dying right now. Okay, take him, God. Can't do that. So our duty isn't just for the person dying. Our duty is first to God. And God says, if somebody is in pain, you, your duty is to help them to the degree that we can. So in this case, no, we should help him. But if somebody's saying, look, I'm, okay, parts are failing and renal this and then, and, and, it's just, it's, there's nothing we can do. 
Right? We cannot prolong his life. Let him go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So a Catholic owns a shopping plaza, and then, and then a, a Protestant church comes and wants to rent space from uh, that for, for, for their worship. Should a Catholic in good conscience rent the place? I don't know if there is any kind of restriction when it comes to conducting business. Um, it's, a, a, it's a business uh, deal, therefore, uh, I don't think there is any restriction to say, no, you cannot allow them to. Now, if you know that particular church to be viscerally against Catholic, you know, saying, oh, Catholics go to hell, and then they're out there, and they're going into your own parish, and you know, of course not. Right, so I think in this, I don't think we can have a black and white answer. It takes judgment in that particular situation to determine what is the right action. It would also be considered discrimination. So in some cases, you you're going to have to work around those laws because even though the laws are what they are, you can't necessarily. I mean, in good conscience, you cannot submit to those laws if they're causing you to violate the law of God. It's kind of sad, different. He, the, 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 my understanding is that the apostles were asking Jesus about these people who were, who were also um, prophesying in his name or healing people in his name. And right. should we stop them? He said, don't stop them. Right. But in this particular case, it could be that this Protestant church are not doing anything like that. Right? I don't know what they're doing. So there needs to be some understanding of what these people are up to, to the degree that you can. Now, you could be actually... And, and that's also a question of responsibility because God is, I mean, the church does not say you're responsible for all the actions that you're, the, 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 or the behavior of the guys who are renting the place. Because who knows, you might have somebody from the mafia who's renting a place, laundering money, and you don't know about it, right? That's possible too, right? But to the degree that you can, you, you must try to uh, question and then find, pray to God to find maybe another renter for you. What I'm saying is that, no, no, it depends on the particular situation. That's what I'm saying, right? If, if it's, let's say, as I said, if Protestants who are dead set against Catholicism, right, then you're going to have to really wonder about that. That's it. Yes. Is it unlawful in any one shape or form to attend a Protestant church? Well, let's be very more specific. You mean the liturgy? The liturgy. Yes, the service. They don't have a liturgy, they have a service. Uh, no, not in all cases. So, for instance, we have friends who, back then, they were our friends. They were both Lutheran, and let's say they were getting married in a Lutheran church, right? Can we go and attend? Yes, we did. We sat in the back, and we did nothing. We were there, but we did not participate. Right? Why? Because if we were to participate, it would indicate a union that didn't exist, right? Because the liturgy is about unity. Hmm? So, we just respectfully sat in the back, watched the whole thing happen, but we were not participants. That was all right. Okay, there was nothing, there was no harm done there. Okay? So, in another case, if it is you're going to a wedding, which is a mixed wedding between a Catholic and a Protestant, and the Catholic has not reneged his faith, then no, you should not. That is not acceptable. Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good. question is, majority of us are working out of necessity. What is the church saying? So, a couple of answers there. First of all, uh, there are cases where a man and a woman must work out of necessity, as you say. That's okay, provided they prayed about it. And provided they really entrust everything in their lives to God. Which I would venture to say that the majority of human beings are not doing. 
Hence, that necessity is created because of the lack of grace. But if we were to worship God in truth and in spirit and truly trust Him, order will fall back into society. So, so, but that necessity is created, right, through the lack of grace flowing in the world. Because then, think about it, God is essentially giving us what we want, which is not what we need. Your, your, your son, your daughter come to you, right? And they want to have a party. Okay? You tell them you can have it till 8 o'clock and no alcohol in my house and only 13 people. 150 people show up in your house. They trash the place. Okay? Now, you tell your kids you're going to work until this house is built, rebuilt. You pay for it. It's going to take them 10 years. They'll say it's by necessity. Do you see my point? Okay. That's what the problem is. Yeah. All right. Yes. Oh, very good question. Thank you. I was going to bring it up, and I didn't. There was also commentary on, well, he only talks about, uh, you know, uh, gay relationship, not lesbian relationship. So is that okay? No, of course it's not. It's the same principle. But remember, these are patrilineal society. It's about the man. So if a man is forbidden from doing something, all the more a woman. So you've got to understand the, 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 the culture. And there is some clarity in Deuteronomy. I Probably there is, yeah, where he actually... Yeah, we'll get to the Deuteronomy later, but where he clarifies it. But even if he did not, there was no need to, because if a man is forbidden from doing something, neither can a woman do it. That's why. Good question. Yes. Yes. So the question is, uh, the, 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 the prohibition was about a woman not wearing a man's clothing, not about a man wearing a woman's clothing. Why? It's really simple. It has to do with the attraction to power. I mean, God knew already that us, all of us, are attracted to power. Right? And the path to power for women is through men. Do what they do. Right? But the woman was always in a position of vulnerability. And a guy, being a guy, would not want to put himself in that situation. So God didn't have to, to, to tell them that. That's why. Right? So you can see also God's psychology. I mean, he addresses those issues that really are meaningful to us. Now, having said that, the scripture was not meant to be a full compendium of everything and every restriction. This is not a manual of do's and to-do's. Right? You've got to understand that it is, the purpose of it is to get you to know who God is. Because the more you know who God is, the more these things you will do naturally. The right thing you will do naturally because you know who God is. You don't need a teacher. That's what St. Peter tells us. In the New Testament, right? Because the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. Yeah, last question. If you understand what I'm trying to tell you here, this is not about, right? Never, ever, will, ever a woman do one thing. What is being intended here is that women do not go after the path of power because that is going to take you away from me. You understand that? Okay, you asked me about who? Saint Marie. Saint. Yeah. Hmm. But before she she was not doing it to gain power. Okay. She wanted to stay with her father. That was her initial intent. Yes? 
and therefore disguised herself as a monk. He had no one to give her to. And he took her with her. And back then the monks lived in huts. Not in a monastery. So every monk has a separate hut. So that's where she ended. And then God knew in his design what was going to happen to him. Because, what did he, to her, what did he do to her? He made her be what? A mother. Do you understand the symbolism here? Yeah. That's her path to holiness. She was a monk. She was a... A, a saint, not because she was a monk, but because she was a mom. It's in rearing that child who was not hers, who, by the way, became a monk too. Really? Oh yeah, he became a monk, right? And in her obedience, which is not the path of power, she obeyed. She subjected herself to that rule. In fact... I would argue with you that St. Marina embodied a woman more than most women do. By her obedience, by her motherly love to a child. You, you know, I don't know how many of you know the story. Marina was known as Marino the monk. She was a girl and pretended to be a monk. So she dressed like a monk. Hence the question. She dressed like a man. Yes, her mom died and her dad had no one to give her to. So he took her with her. He wanted to become a monk. Him, thank you. He took her with him. And he became a monk, and she became a monk too, living in a hut. Well, monks would go into town and make visits and, um, and take care of people. The girl of one of those people that were visiting thought that Marino, the monk, was attractive and wanted Marino to sleep with her. And Marino refused, at which point she and this girl became pregnant by another means, and she accused Marino to be the father. <laughs> One that was made known, the, uh, the superior of the monastery brought Marino forward and laid the accusations, and she did not open her mouth. She didn't defend herself. So they kicked the monk out of the monastery. So she was no longer a monk. And they gave her the child to take care of, which he had nothing to do with. She raised the child like, his, like her own, as a mother. And that child became a monk. And then she stayed, she lived in the hut, and all her life living this life. Now, when she died, right, out of respect for all the monks, they wanted to give her a proper burial. And in order to do that, they have to wash the body. She was an older woman by then. And when they went to wash the body, they fell on their knees, begging God's forgiveness. And then she became a saint. She became a saint, Saint Marina. And uh, we, we celebrate her. She's, a, she's part of the Maronite uh, calendar. Joan of Arc is another example. Right? She led the army. She dressed in men's clothing. Right? But why? She was called by God to do that. She did God's will. Right? So God can... And will, in specific cases, make women leaders for specific situations. But these women are immune to the call of power because they love God. They're not doing it because of power. That's what's important. So yeah, you can find uh, cases where a woman takes on the role of a man. And that's fine. But what was the purpose? Why is she doing it? Where is that leading her? Those are the key I have questions. To intend 
Okay. Make sense? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.